Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we're going to actually look at John 3 today, which is a little bit of jumping around from what we've been talking about with the uh, the Old Testament minor prophets. And uh, But we we take a lot of these rabbit trails, but we're all always talking about the Gospel of the Kingdom. And the good news of the Kingdom was that the kingdom of God was at hand with Jesus Christ. Now, the good news at the time of the bondage in Egypt was that Moses was there to set the people free. Of course, the people didn't necessarily like the repercussions of becoming free because uh, one of the first things that happened was that they had to start taking responsibility for themselves because the government benefits were being cut off by the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh was right. He, he knew that, look, you guys want to be free, then I'm not giving you any more benefits. No more free straw for you guys. You, you guys are going to have to learn how to take care of yourself. Not only that, that they had to t- start taking care of themselves there was all kinds of problems in Egypt. Difficulties. Uh, plagues. You know, water supply was affected. And uh, fire and brimstone. Earthquakes. Uh, plagues of uh, flies and frogs. And eventually the firstborn died. And there's actual logical reasons why almost all these things took place but they took place almost at the command of Moses or at least he had insight into the fact that they were coming and uh, what happened was life got very difficult for Egyptians and it got very difficult for Israelites as well except for the Israelites were prepared and because they were not dependent upon the government benefits of the Pharaoh, because he had cut those off, they learned to take care of one another. They, they, this was the absolute essential training ground for preparing for freedom and liberty. So the good news was Moses was going to show them the way to be a free society. And to function as a free society. And he had, you know, he'd evidently been contemplating this for a long time, thinking about it. It is my contention, I can't necessarily prove it, but as I read the scriptures, look at the original Hebrew, uh, and forget about the movie, <laughs> I see that the reason, uh, Moses, who was, uh, the rightful Tutan Moses, the rightful heir to the throne of Pharaoh, as the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh, and the only son of the daughter of Pharaoh, that uh, he he was the rightful heir to the throne. He didn't have to leave. He left because he saw himself becoming a tyrant. 
And if you read the text carefully, look at the Hebrew words, that's what I believe was going through the mind and heart of Moses is that he was leaving because of the fact that he was becoming a tyrant. He felt the power corrupting him. And that's something we've all heard about is the power corrupts. And uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we see the same problem, you know, the temptations facing uh, Gideon, uh, certainly facing Saul, uh, facing uh, uh, David, uh, where David started numbering the people and he he started doing lots of things. He was actually going to annihilate somebody who uh, uh, failed to support his military uh, defense of the nation. And uh, he repented of these things. And so therefore, David was a king after God's own heart because of the fact that he he was tempted by the power and he fell numerous times to that temptation of power and began to assert it. But then he, uh, you know, he was even going to build a stone temple and he repented of that. Uh, he was going to number the people and create a draft. He repented of that. Uh, he did have this episode with Bathsheba, which is, of course, he had the power to do almost anything, but he didn't have the power to violate the family. And that is that is an essential part of the Ten Commandments, essential part of the uh, plan uh, that God has for mankind. And we keep straying from the plan, but... The God instituted the idea of the family. One man, one woman become one flesh. They create the family and produce the next generation. And we are to honor that. And uh, that is the building block. But also he instituted something else, which was through Moses he instituted the church in the wilderness, which was he called out the Levites to serve the tabernacles of the congregations of the people. Now, in order to provide a welfare for the people, take care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity, uh, they were going to need the charity of the individual people, which takes us back to what the Israelites were learning in the bondage of Egypt was how to take care of one another, how to care about one another, how to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. How to care about your neighbor's rights as much as you care about your own. That if you don't do that, you will not have a free society. Because the Levites could not force the contributions of the people. The tithing that was given them was coming from the ten families they served in this network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And they they served... All of them by serving each individual one. And they were able to do this because they were tithed to according to their service. So the power of the purse strings of the nation were in the hands of the people. This is why when they created the golden calf that Moses said that was not right. You don't want to do that. Yeah, it uh, it it creates the one purse that they talk about in Proverbs. We have articles up at preparing you on that that explains what, why this one purse runs towards death. 
runs towards evil is because that's socialism. That it will degenerate the people. And so you don't want that. You want your money in your pocket. God's a capitalist. What you produce is yours. But you need to use it wisely. And if you're actually, you know, if you take out love thy neighbor as thyself, but have your own purse, you're headed for destruction. If if you take out, have one purse for the whole nation, but then still say, but yeah, love thy neighbor as thyself, you're still headed for destruction. You need all those elements of the kingdom in order to make the kingdom work. And of course, Christ was constantly breaking down those elements into the basics of human nature. You're not going to love your neighbor as yourself if you don't forgive your neighbor. If you don't forgive your brother. Uh, nobody will take care of you when you're an old man if you don't take care of your old man when you're younger. <laughs> See? <laughs> and so you had to honor your father and your mother. That meant to fatten. The word there for honor meant to fatten. That You can just look that up in a concordance. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to go to bed on time when they tell you. It doesn't mean to obey. It means to fatten. To take care of your parents so that your days will be long upon the land. Because somebody's liable to take care of you when you get old. So all this has practical. So loving thy neighbor, forgiving your brother, forgiving one another. Uh, love, the same word for love is the same word we see translated charity when Paul uses it. Uh, and that's what, that's part of the elements of the kingdom. And they had to learn those skills because they had lost those skills when they were in the bondage of Egypt. And they had to go back and learn what it meant to be a free society. Now, what was the bondage of Egypt? 20% of your labor and the fruits of your labor did not go to you. It went to the, the Pharaoh. 20% of your labor belonged to the government. They provided you with social welfare when there was shortages and needs and, you know, free bread, so to speak. When there was a need for the free bread. But in order for them to have those stores of free bread, you had to contribute to the Pharaoh, to the government of the Pharaoh. Twenty percent of your labor belonged to the government. And that was the bondage of Egypt. You were never to go back to the bondage of Egypt once Moses had saved you through the power of God. But you have. Okay, that's that's a done deal. More than 20% of your labor belongs to the government because you've signed up with the government to get the benefits of the government. And now your sacrifice is extracted by your employer who is a federal, uh, you know, has a federal employer identification number and with that he's able to restrict uh, you know, take out 20%, 30%, 40% of your labor, uh, the value of it, 
and send that to the government. That is the bondage of Egypt. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. You think you live in a free nation. No, you live in the bondage of Egypt. Now, that, a lot of people don't want to believe that. They don't want to hear that. It's not a matter of, you know, it's not difficult to figure out. One-fifth of your labor and of the Israelites and all Egyptians belong to the government. That was bondage. Somehow or other, you think that you're not in bondage? You know, this is just basic, simple reasoning. Yeah, if if one-fifth of your labor belongs to the government, you're in the bondage of Egypt. If more than that, then you're in a bondage worse than Egypt. And that happens to be the case. But Christ, they were doing the same thing at the time of Christ. Herod had instituted that. You go read our article on Herod, our articles on John the Baptist, on baptism. We show you that they had turned the Corbin of the temple, the Corbin of the community, Corbin means sacrifice, the sacrifice of the people, they had turned it into a compelled offering where they were going to collect their 10, 20% whether you liked it or not. And they they sent out guys, and we explain, we name them, we show you how the system worked. We have hundreds of footnotes. This is what Herod was setting up. This is how he was able to build a golden temple. And, and how he was able to build the Temple of Roma as well, as the Jewish temple. He built two temples, at least. And he was able to do it because people who signed up for that system of social welfare, had to pay in. Guaranteed. Well, as soon as you have to pay in under penalty of law, your ministers can get slack. You know, they're going to get their money no matter what. Whether they do a good job or not. Now, they might. you might have some sort of indirect democracy where you get to elect those ministers that run your daily ministration, but actually you elect guys who appoint them because it's the vast bureaucracy that provides you with all this welfare. You don't you don't actually go out and elect guys to run the Social Security Administration or to run a welfare system or anything. You elect representatives and senators, and then they create this giant bureaucracy that provides you with social welfare. But that's all what they call legal charity. And we have articles up on legal charity. They talked about that back in the 1830s, 1850s. Even Davy Crockett talked about it. How that destroys society. You can go back 2,000 years, even before Christ, 150 years before Christ. Polybius talked about it. That it degenerates society. Legal charity, which is charity by government, charity by the pharaoh, Weakens society. Because you don't get to make the choice to take care of one another through love, through charity. They call it legal charity. It's an oxymoron. It's not really charity. The men who call themselves benefactors, they give you charity. You know, welfare, Medicare, Medicaid, all kinds of benefits. They give those to you. But they're not taking it out of their pocket. They're taking it out of your neighbor's pocket. 
That's a covetous practice. To desire those benefits is a, you're coveting what's in your neighbor's pocket. Because they're going to take and take and take and take and take. Samuel 8 tells you that. And, and they're, because they have the power to take, they're corrupted. See, so now we've gone full circle. This, this power corrupts. And so, Jesus comes on the scene and they've created a system of legal charity under Herod and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are holding the political power at that time. And it's making the word of God to none effect. The sacrifice of the people was being collected by force was making the word of God to none effect because the word of God is is that you had to do it with free will offerings. That's what it says in the Old Testament. They say charity in the New Testament. If you're not doing that, if you're not taking care of all the social welfare of your community, of your society, of your Christian community, it's not really a Christian community. If you're not taking care of all the social welfare of your Jewish community through charity, through free will offerings, you're not, you're not following Moses. You're certainly not following Abraham if you're taking the benefits from men who exercise authority. Abraham wouldn't even take a buckle. But you take all kinds of benefits. This weakens you as individuals. So, you know what would happen? The society would become so weak. And the people of society would become so weak that somebody could come along and tell everybody they have to start wearing masks and get medical treatment that is untested and everybody would start complying. And even the people who didn't like that or opposed it they wouldn't know what to do. They would have no means to fight against it. They would complain, you know, like on Facebook and and maybe in the press. And, you know, maybe a few guys would be courageous enough not to wear masks and uh, in stores and get yelled at and yelled back. But they wouldn't do anything to stop it. They, they wouldn't really change it. Oh, they'd get minor little victories here and there and a few states would probably support them. But basically, they would destroy millions of families. They, they would, they, of course, before they even got to that point, they probably already brainwashed your children. They may have brainwashed you. You might have actually thought you lived in a free country where you paid way more than 20% to the government of your labor. Your labor didn't belong to you. 20, 30, 40% of your labor belonged to the government. And you thought yourself were, you were free. That's a delusion. You're not really free. You're in the bondage of Egypt. But you think you're free. And one of the things that helps you think that you're free or you imagine that you're free, is John 3. The quotes from John 3. Because people only read part of the quotes. They don't understand the context of the quotes that they... People are always reciting quotes. I always hear this. Where they're, they're quoting some verse or two verses in the Bible, and they're saying, look, you know, they do this with Paul all the time. 
they quote Paul not only out of the context of Christ, which Paul warns against, because he says, I preached Christ first. So every time you quote Paul, you need to look at what Christ actually said, because that's where he starts. Everything he says is within the teachings of Christ. A lot of people don't see that because he talks about things that are difficult to understand, which Peter told you he would do. But one of the reasons you don't understand that is because you don't understand Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today in John 3. Is And we don't want to take John 3 out of the context of John 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, etc. And we don't want to take any of John out of the context of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we don't want to take Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John out of the context of the Torah. Because the same God was behind all of this. The same creative force, the same creative spirit that created the patterns of creation that we see all around us in nature, in our own bodies. And that's why we use these metaphors of the body of Christ. is because these... You know, words are symbols of ideas. We are symbols also representing ideas. And if you're following the way of Christ, you will look a certain way. I mean, you you may comb your hair any way you want. You may wear any kind of clothes you want. It's not a uniform in that sense. But you will do things a certain way. You will not be engaging in covetous practices. You will be engaging in forgiveness You will not be judging one another as ruling judges. You may discern that this guy is not trustworthy, but that's not necessarily judging him. Ascribing punishment to him, that's judging. In the sense that judge not lest you be judged. See, you do not want to pray for justice. You want to pray for mercy. You're going to get justice one way or another. But mercy, how do you get mercy? You pray for mercy. Well, let's see, you put your mercy where your prayer is. How much mercy do you have on your neighbor? Do you care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself? Well, if you do... You'll do what Christ commanded. You'll gather together in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and start going to congregational meetings trying to figure out how you can help your neighbor. You don't go to church. You don't go to congregational meetings to figure out how to help yourself. How you can set yourself free. How you can, you know, make your life better. You do it to save others. Because that's coming in the name of Christ. Coming in the name of Christ is coming to save others. It's not going for the music. <laughs> I I saw, what was his name? MacArthur, uh, I trying to remember his first name, but a uh, famous preacher. And uh, anyway, we'll have to talk about that when we come back. But he he's right about a lot of things, but he it's what he doesn't talk about. That concerns me the most. And so we're going to talk about what a lot of people, we've already been doing it, what a lot of people don't want to talk about. The elephant in the room. We'll be right back. So, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, I promised you John 
3. So let's take a look at John 3. And uh, and we'll just kind of go through it and read it. But it mentions several things. There's several parts to it. can't actually even remember. I, mean, I think there's about 36 verses in it. Yeah, so uh, it's pretty long. And uh, you know me, I'm going to probably take you in different directions so that we circle each of the ideas that are represented in in this John 3. And then we'll eventually put the recording up on the website because we have the whole Bible there and we're doing studies of the different books and the different epistles and the different prophets and then we'll put these recordings with each of those individual uh, studies and in, there'll be a side panel there if, you, if we've covered it and the side panel will have links and other commentaries and and I've gone through and read lots of the commentaries on this but John 3 is is one of the uh, extremely abused uh, books of the Bible, uh, or, you know, chapters in the books of the Bible. John is a little bit different than the other Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's written very differently, and we could get into that, but we won't, because that'll be a huge rabbit trail. But there's so many unique things about John uh, that you just don't... Uh, that will tell you all kinds of things about the author of the text once you look at it and read it in the Greek. And lots of people have, but they don't all seem to see it. So, do, do I see it or not? Well, you'll just have to figure that out because I'm not your comforter. It's the Holy Spirit that's your comforter. So you're going to have to consult with the Holy Spirit to find out whether or not I'm telling you the truth. I mean, we do have footnotes. But... Uh, that you know, we I may just be real clever at at guiding you down a bad way to go, but I think I'm consistent with the gospel. And if you don't think I am, join the network and show me where I'm wrong. Write us and show me where I'm wrong. So anyway, John three verse one, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Well, now we can go and take a look at the word ruler there. Now, the Greek won't tell you as much as the Hebrew would. But uh, it's basically written in Greek, so we're stuck with the Greek. But I have a link there to Pharisees so you understand who the Pharisees were. Pharisees, uh, Sadducees, uh, Zealots, and actually several different groups of the Zealots, were literally political parties at that time. They had... You know, there were several different sects of Pharisees. There were several different uh, sects of the Zealots. Uh, there were also Essenes. And there were lots of different groups of Essenes. There were some Essenes that, like the Nazarene Essenes. And then there were other Essenes that were called lovers of soft things. And they actually often were more involved in in the palace and, and the political uh, things that were going on. And, of course, when they had the Sanhedrin at one time, uh, some of the Sanhedrin might have been leaning more towards the Pharisee approach. And Pharisees were different at different times. So, you know, like talking about Pharisees today, talking about Pharisees 2,000 years ago or in 700 A.D., all these Pharisees might be slightly different, but there were certain common threads. But... It is important to understand that at that time, the Pharisees were 
representing a political philosophy, not just a theological view. There was no separation of church and state in Israel. There really is a separation of church and state in the United States, but that's another topic. We won't go there. So, but uh, he was this ruler of the Jews. In other words, he was probably a part of the Sanhedrin at that time. Now, we've talked about this before, and we have an article up on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, by the time that Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, had undergone a tremendous upheaval. A huge number of the people in the Sanhedrin walked out. The majority actually walked out uh, because of corruption. They didn't want to have anything to do with the corruption that was going on. This was, of course, during the period of time where John the Baptist was still a youth. Which is part of the reason why John the Baptist was out there in, the, you know, the Jordan in the desert. He had removed the laver from the temple, which was corrupted. There had been murder that had taken place in in the in uh, the temple, so therefore it had to be reconsecrated. And you know, you have to go back and understand they were never meant to have a stone temple. That that was not in the original prescription of God. And like I mentioned in the first part of the show, that David started to build a stone te- temple and repented of it. That it was a mistake. That's not, it's not about a building. <laughs> and certainly not one inlaid with gold. Uh, that idea of having all the, the golden ornaments and all this stuff all over the temple, that's, that's going back the way of the golden calf. If you don't understand the golden calf, we have an article up on that. So anyway, verse 2, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So why did he come at night? Because we know the Pharisees did not like Jesus. This guy was a Pharisee and he was beginning to see that Jesus was of God. He saw the miracles and he believed by the miracles. But there was enough righteousness in the man that he was not driven by his hate. The other Pharisees hated Jesus because he questioned their right and power. He questioned their methods. He questioned their righteousness. And of course the Pharisees thought of themselves as righteous. So Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that's a huge jump. Or he all of a sudden says that. Well, this is the way it's written in John. There may have been other things that were said. It doesn't say he didn't say something else too. It said that he at least said this to this Nicodemus. And Nicodemus responds, saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time? into the mother's womb and be born. So, he knows, I think Nicodemus knows that Jesus isn't talking about that. 
But he's looking for a deeper understanding. Cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you be born again. Well, Jesus does answer him. And that's very important because many times Jesus did not give people answers because they would not receive them. And that's something you should need to do. Don't cast pearls to swine. Uh, follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you when you should answer people, when you should talk, but don't go running out trying to explain everything to everybody. That's a mistake. Explain everything God wants you to explain to everybody God wants you to explain it to. How do you know what God wants you to explain? Well, you have to be guided by the Holy Spirit. How do you get guided by the Holy Spirit? Well, one, you need to be drawn near the Holy Spirit. One of the ways you draw near the Holy Spirit is sacrifice. Not just sacrifice money. Not just sacrifice stuff. Sacrifice time. Sacrifice your pride. See, Nicodemus came and admitted that Jesus had to be a prophet of God. And when Jesus said this crazy thing, he wanted an explanation. He he felt that that uh, that Jesus would give it to him. And of course, in verse five, we see Jesus answered him again. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the first time he said, see the kingdom of God. The second time he says, enter the kingdom of God. And he makes the distinction, born of water, which is natural birth. You know, the woman says, my water broke. Well, you're about to have a baby. Because the baby's been in water. They knew that. They understood that. That's water birth. Baptism is is a symbol of that process of birth and being born again. But even John the Baptist says, I only baptize you with water. There's one who comes after me that baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. So this is the same topic. Jesus is just saying it in a little bit different way. That's why he says, verily, verily. He's saying, you could say this in a lot of different ways. But you had to be born of water. Everybody has to be born of water. But you also have to be born of the Spirit. And order to enter the kingdom of God. Now you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again of the Spirit to enter into the kingdom of God. So verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So in verse 7, he sa- it says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Don't, don't be confused. Don't be, you know, like, this is a big deal. This is a simple thing. Now, verse 8 starts somewhere else, but let's let's backtrack just a little bit here. How did we get into our present state? Our fallen state? Now, of course, Many people fall and then they fall again and there's stumbling blocks and there's the Nicolaitans and the Arabalum 
Balaam was what we called it in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we call it the heir of the Nicolaitan. And, of course, both of those words means conquered people. And, of course, the people that were in the bondage of Egypt were conquered by the Pharaoh. They belonged to the Pharaoh. They were merchandise of the Pharaoh. Their labor, or at least a portion of their labor, belonged to the Pharaoh. And so they were indebted to the Pharaoh because he gave them food when they, when they had none. We see the same principle talking about Esau and Jacob, where Esau sells his birthright for a pot of porridge. Isn't that what the Israelites did? They sold their birthright for a pot of porridge. That's not the only way you could sell your birthright. But you could do it. You, the, the, the benefits. Gifts, gratuities, and benefits are the greatest destroyers of liberty. That's what Plutarch said at the time of the early church. He knew that. He knew that what caused the destruction of Rome was he who spread amongst them these benefits. And of course, who spread those benefits amongst the people of America? Well, FDR certainly did. LBJ certainly did. We have articles up on them. Just look up FDR. Look up LBJ. And you'll see that those systems of welfare through the state, which is called legal charity in some circles, welfare state, the roots of the welfare state, we have lots of articles on that. And those articles are linked to all kinds of other articles, and some of them have recordings with them already. So you can understand that Christ forbid us to look to the governments of the world for benefits. He, he, he did that in the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says it's not to be that way with us. But anyway, back to this being born of the Spirit. How did we get into trouble to begin with? We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we died to the Spirit, to the tree of life. We actually fled the tree of life. Because... For the same reason, Adam and Eve hid themselves when their eyes were open and they realized they had no authority to decide what was good and evil. That they were usurping God by trying to make those decisions themselves instead of eating of the tree of life, which is the tree of the Holy Spirit. And they were cut off from the Holy Spirit because in order to return to the Holy Spirit, you had to admit your sin. You're wrong. Your pride. Your vanity. Well, life got difficult for Adam and Eve after that. And they, they were not ready to repent. And they fled the light. And we shouldn't be fleeing the light. We should be seeking the truth. But people are still fleeing the light. I'm telling you where the light is at and how to get back to the way, uh, of life which is to follow the way of Christ, which is to gather together in the Spirit of Christ and sacrifice out of love for one another. In order to do that, you have to forgive one another. And you have to be willing to lay down your life for one another. 
And if you were doing that for the last 50 years, instead of going farther and farther into a system of social welfare through men who exercise authority, which is what you've been doing for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, 100 years, I mean, FDR was almost 90 years ago, was 90 years ago. And he was offering you benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And even borrow against the future of your children. So he cursed your children and made you merchandise. And you re-entered the bondage of Egypt. It didn't just start with FDR. But it certainly got rolling with FDR. We can go back to other presidents in the United States. And we could probably find a similar history. And we've gone over places like Australia. This alters the people of society when they go that way. They are born more and more of the flesh and less and less of the spirit when they go that way. They were doing that in uh, Judea for almost 50 years. Getting farther and farther away. And John the Baptist was saying, no, everybody else is doing it by force. We're going to do it by charity. What you know, if your neighbor has no coat and you have two, you share. You do the same in meats. You share charity, free will offerings. That is the message of John the Baptist. That is the message of Christ. That was the message continued by by people like uh, Paul and Barnabas, who were through charity were going around helping people during these major dearths and economic destruction of the Roman Empire. You're seeing the modern Roman Empire in the United States where you're in bondage in the modern Roman Empire and not just the United States but Australia and Europe and and all the countries all around the world have all followed after this same idea. More so with some than others but it's everywhere. It's pervasive. And everybody's, I mean, you can go into the jungles of Guatemala and somebody there with a loincloth and you say, where's your ID? And they will pull out a card from their loincloth and show you their ID, their government ID. You know, and uh, it's everywhere. And all these IDs, you know, whether it's a Seshla card or whatever it is, a national insurance card or whatever it is, they're all linked. Worldwide, two treaties. And we explain all this. We even show you where you can find out where those treaties are and everything. Go read our articles on Social Security, etc. People are waiting for the mark of the beast. You've got it already. Because that card lets you take a bite out of one another. You can go and apply for benefits from men who will take away from your neighbors so that you can have free stuff. That's what that card allows you to do. It makes you a part of the beast system, a part of the system of biting one another. It makes you a part of the bondage of Egypt that is worldwide now, not just in Egypt. So anyway, what does this have to do with John 3? Well, if you're born again of the Spirit, you will see the kingdom of God. You will see the kingdom of God is a network of people come together with the Spirit of Christ, which is the Spirit of God, to take care of one another in faith, hope, and charity, not using force, fear, or fealty to subject their neighbor to their will for their benefit. Not to take a bite out of their neighbor, not to covet their neighbor's goods, but to love one another, 
that's real love. When I, I, I'm on home church groups. Uh, I just had somebody from the, I think he's in the Carolinas now. He was in New York. You know, asking questions about the early church and what we think that's all about. And I posted to him. And I explained that the early church took care of all social welfare in the Christian community through charity alone. And they were unspotted by the benefits of the world. By, which is the governments of the world. Because Christ commanded that we not do that. We not to be that way. There's no way to do that unless everybody sits down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and organizes themselves in a system of charity to take care of one another. When you do that, you are practicing the Corbin of Christ instead of the Corbin of FDR or Herod or LBJ or Cloward and Piven. You're practicing the Corbin of Christ, of John the Baptist, of Paul, of Peter. That Corbin does not make you merchandise. It does not curse your children. What it does is draw you near the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit near you. That's an individual thing. It's not, you know, like if if ten of us get together, (laughs) we'll all get closer to the Holy Spirit. No, individually. You must be born again of the Spirit. And that's a process. Like any birth, it's a process. So, you know, Jesus said, like I said in in 7, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And 8, he said, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound whereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. If you're born of the Spirit, you you don't have control of the spirit, uh, and it doesn't even really want control of you. It is a guiding spirit. It is showing you. It's like the tree of life. It is showing you what is right and what is wrong for you in a given moment, in a given period of time, for a given set of circumstances. It's, it does all the calculations and figures it all out. You don't have to figure it out. It just shows you, go this way, turn left, turn right, go here, talk to that guy, don't talk to that guy. It guides you. But you have to submit to it. You have to admit that you're naked. You have no authority to decide good and evil. And that you need to be guided by that Holy Spirit. And that's, like I say, it's a process of of layers and layers, of generation upon generation. You have to be born again of the Spirit and be following the Spirit rather than the flesh. You have to fast from the benefits of the flesh, especially the flesh where you're taking a bite out of the flesh of your neighbor. And that's what you do when you sit down in a congregation and, and, and Start gathering together, not forsaking the gathering together, to start learning what it means to love one another. Because the unrighteous mammon will fail. It will fail. And if you start doing that, you will be more suitable for righteous habitations. I'm not saying cheat on your income tax or any of that nonsense. I'm saying start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness on a day-to-day basis. Nicodemus answered and said, 
unto him, How can these things be? Still was confused. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel? And knowest not these things? Now, it would be, and I don't have the Greek right in front of me. I should have pulled that up. But, uh, master of Israel. What, what words did he actually use there? Is that a proper translation? I would suspect that there's probably a better word than master to put there. <laughs> but anyway, verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. And if I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? So you need to be born again of the Spirit to even understand what he's talking about. And that's what we're going to talk about when we return to Keys of the Kingdom after another brief break. So be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. When I was talking, we read through verse 10 and it. It talks about, uh, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Well, anyway, I went and looked up the word master during the break. And uh, sure enough, you know, when I read it, I thought that doesn't seem right. I mean, he w- Jesus wouldn't call this guy who is probably a member of the Sanhedrin a master of Israel. And, of course, in most translations, you'll see the word teacher there because that's the actual Greek word. Is actually means teacher. And in the King James, you'll see that word translated master. Uh, and like I said, many other translations, you'll see it translated teacher. Now, does that make the King James wrong? Well, no. The King James translated master in a time period in England where teachers were often called masters. It didn't mean like master in the southern slave states, where you were a slave to a master. It was that the teachers were called headmaster. You've seen that in books written back in in the day that were referred to a teacher as a headmaster or the master of the class. And we even, today we have master classes that they give on the internet. If you want to learn a particular subject, they call it a master class. So it isn't necessarily, it's incorrect to say master there. But you may confuse or become confused because you don't know the meaning of the word master at the time the King James was translating the word that means teacher into master because you don't realize that a teacher a professor would be called a master he's a master of the subject that he is teaching uh, because he knows this so this is this is how sophistry can have its way with your thinking that somehow or other you think that he was a ruler the Sanhedrin was not to have any legislative powers. Originally, when Moses set up the Sanhedrin, it had no legislative powers. It wasn't going to make new law for the people. It was supposed to help teach the people the law. 
if they did not learn from the Kadesh, from the Holy Spirit. That they were to be this guiding force in society to help show them, yeah, abortion is a bad thing. <laughs> they, they would rule on that and say that, but they're not making law. They're trying to help you. And of course, like I said, shortly before this particular period, a great many people that were in the Sanhedrin had walked out. The majority had walked out because the corruption was so bad they would have nothing to do with it. Now, a new one took its place right away, thanks to the Pharisees who were controlling the powers of government at that time. But that new one was not not closer to the truth. It was farther from it. But here comes Nicodemus, and he's not far from the kingdom of God. He's not far from the truth. And he was a teacher of Israel. And, he, and Jesus kind of given him a hard time here. He said, Art thou a teacher of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. Well, to some degree, he is receiving it. But collectively, the Pharisees were not. But he, he at least came by night and was asking these questions. And so, this is, this is, this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus is trying to show you that you're not going to see what I'm talking about. You're not going to see what Jesus was talking about. You're not going to see what, just simply because you have a better translation. You have to be born of the Spirit. And you have no control over that. But like I said, Corbin is from a Hebrew word that means to draw near. Draw near what? The Holy Spirit, the Kadesh. And by drawing near that and it near you, you could become inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's no formula. You know, like, uh, you know, we do this, 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 we run down this checklist, and then we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, many people are mistaking emotion for the Holy Spirit. That is not, emotion is not the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, generally speaking, when the Holy Spirit is guiding you, there's very little emotion. You're actually in an extremely calm state. You're not worked up emotionally. You're not all excited emotionally. You may be aware of it, but you're you're the observer of the Holy Spirit working through you. You're not manipulating the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit listeth where it will. The wind bloweth where it will. He says in verse 12 again, If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... On his staff, this coiled copper thing on his staff. 
Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on Asteros, on the cross. That's what he's talking about. I'm adding that because that's what the symbol. But again, the cross is that he was lifted up on was a symbol of what we need to do. And what, what was Christ? Christ was th- this anointed. You need to lift up the anointing of God over the willfulness of yourselves. And examples of that were, that we would see, that you should see, is that you're judging not. You know, I, I had an incident with somebody who all of a sudden said something, particularly, I won't say what, but I saw that there was judgment in them of a whole group of people in society. It wasn't a gigantic group, but it, it was a common um presence throughout societies and every society you have these people and they they have a particular opinion and this person had a little bit different opinion or approach to what these other people were doing and they spoke judgmentally of them now that that you know I, I I'm trying to avoid giving away who I'm talking about but you do not want to be judging others that are, say, let's take it into the uh, realm of denominations. Somebody's a Jehovah Witness. Somebody else is a Seventh-day Adventist. And to them, it, it's absolutely essential you count out those seven days. And other people will use other calendars and the seventh day will move around every month, you know, because they have a way of figuring this. And there's, you know, the whole calendar issue and all this but the Sabbath, the idea that you have to take that day off and, and not do any work on that day, and that's that's keeping the Sabbath. And we have a whole article on the Sabbath that keeping the Sabbath has to do with what you do the other six days. In other words, you earn your day off. You earn your rest. You work six days so that you can have your rest on the seventh. You don't take your rest on the first day and then have to work to pay off that rest you've already taken. In other words, the Sabbath is about debt. That's very clear to me when I look at it. That that when I read it, I was thinking like, this is about debt. <laughs> this is even before I understood the Federal Reserve and, and debt and. The fact that all your benefits are borrowing against the future of your children and cursing your children. I just said, well, you know, it tells you. I mean, there's an explanation right there. The way you keep the Sabbath holy is you work six days first. (laughs) And then you take your rest. It's just practical. And and otherwise, if you take your rest today, then you owe the labor and you're in debt. Now you have to, you know, it's like, you know, it's actually I, I flashed on the old Popeye cartoon with Wimpy, who says, "Would you give me a nickel for a hamburger today that I will pay you back tomorrow?" <laughs> no, no, Wimpy, go out and earn the nickel and then buy the hamburger. <laughs> You're overweight anyway. You know, Wimpy was always this overweight character. Anyhow, you could use a day of fasting. And 
But people don't see that. They see what they want to see. Because they sit in darkness. They don't live by the Spirit. See, when I saw these things by the Spirit, and, and only by the grace of God, because no way I deserve to see the things that I've seen. Then I am compelled to go out and share them with other people in a way. So I said, God, you're going to have to give me the means by which to show people. So then I went and did all the studying. And took all these notes. And write this down. I mean, this morning, I was up uh, hours before daybreak. Uh, doctoring up pages adding to pages, preparing you, and now I want to get somebody who will volunteer and start turning all these pages into PDFs and we'll put them on another site cause, and, and maybe start printing them out and putting them into study books so that people can look at this and read them over and over again and see them. I just seen a typo on the page when I was looking at it. So, <laughs> just had a code letter backwards and so it it shows up but the it's a huge amount of work to put all this together but it's it's a work that God has put before me and I take it on willingly but it also gives you an opportunity to seek the kingdom of God and the way you do this is not by helping yourself but by helping others and because that is the character of Christ And so you don't want to be judging others because you will be judged. Because I guarantee you are not doing things the way God wanted you to do them. You may be doing some things. I'm not condemning you. I just, this is the nature of the fallen man and we are all fallen men and women. So Moses lifted up this serpent so that and, and, of course, now the image that we have is he just lifted up and people looked at it because this is what the artist paint. But that that's another whole story. What he was actually lifting up was a mechanism. And it was a way in which to treat a snake bite and the poison, to neutralize the poisons. But that was symbolic of living the life of Christ by sacrificing yourself for others. And following the directives of Christ, that the poisons that have gotten into your heart are detoxified as well. It's not about holding the crucifix up and everybody looking at the crucifix. It's about holding up the values expressed in the life of Christ in our own life. And like I said, Christ did not come to be comforted. Christ didn't come for the music. Christ didn't come for the fellowship. Christ came to lay down his life for his fellow man and certainly not for the benefits. There's a burden with following the ways of Christ. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, this is where we get into one of the most misused phrases of the Bible is this John 3, 15, 16. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I have a link there to an article on eternal life. For God so loved the world. And what word did he use there? The planet? No. 
he's he's talking about the systems of the world, the governments of the world. He didn't love them because of their deeds. He hated their deeds because their deeds were the deeds of the Nicolaitan. But he loved the people that were bound in the systems of the world, in the constitutional orders and systems of government. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish along with the world. Because the world is the unrighteous famine and it is going to perish. But he wanted to save you out of that system of Nicolaitans and Balaam and, and the ways of the world. And so you have to look at what Christ did. Christ didn't come to take from the needy, like Gideon. I and my family will not rule over you. Christ was tempted with these same things. And we have a whole page on temptations of Christ. What was, what was that all about? That whosoever believeth in him, the real Jesus, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I added a new page just in this last week. The real Jesus. Do you believe in the real Jesus? People say, I believe in Jesus. But is it, is it the real Jesus or is it an image of Jesus? We just saw how they took a, a Greek word and they translated it master. And like I said, it's not necessarily wrong, but our understanding of it may be wrong because we don't remember that when that was translated master in England... England referred to its teachers as master. Because they were masters of that subject. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You're, you're a member of the Sanhedrin. You're supposed to be a, a, a teacher of the way of God. And you don't know these things? So that's... But you can think that somehow or other he was a ruler... Over the people. And they use that other word. And we can go look at that too. But we want to keep clipping along here. So God sent his son. That you might be saved. From the world. That is going to perish. That's going to fail. That you're bound up in. Because you're in the bondage of Egypt. And and when Egypt goes. You go. You want to be able to rise above that destruction and be, you won't be worthy, but you will be in a position to receive the grace of God that ye might be saved. That's why they use that word, might be saved. <laughs> so, reading verse 18 again, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Believe what? You have to believe the real Jesus. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Name. I should put a link there to that word name. When they refer to the name of somebody, they're referring to the character, the virtue, the values of that individual. Not the letters of his name. If you think it has to do with saying Yeshua instead of saying Jesus, then you're you're more like the Pharisees. You, but the letter killeth. Only the Spirit giveth life. That's why I'm, I'm saying you don't take these statements out of the context of the rest because he tells you. The name is not the letters. The name is the character, the precept upon precept of Christ. 
Verse 19, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Now, God loves the world. He hates the deeds. Just like he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, who take a bite out of one another and are conquered by their own appetite, their own want, wantonness for the benefits of the world, which are called the unrighteous wages, or the wages of unrighteousness. Why are they unrighteous? Because they are brought to you by force, not by faith. By fealty, not by charity. Not by love for one another, but by covetous practices. So, verse 20 goes on and says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. All these people think that they are saved because they say they believe in Jesus while they participate in a system that takes a bite out of their neighbor to provide them with free education, care for their parents, welfare, Medicare, Medicaid, all kinds of other benefits throughout society are all provided not by volunteerism, Not by charity, but by legal charity, forced charity. By men who exercise authority one over the other. Those are wicked deeds. We know, and you don't see them as wicked. You actually think that they're okay. They're not okay. You're taking a bite out of one another. You're coveting one another's goods. You've become merchandise. You've entered into the bondage of Egypt again. You've returned to that bondage of Egypt, which we were told never to go back to again. And you didn't even know it. You know, the, the minister MacArthur, is he, is he preaching this? He's right about so many things. I've been, I joined his group just to see what they're saying. To give me more ideas. And, and, and actually, I joined it because God said, join it. <laughs> That's why I just, because I thought like I, at the first time I saw it, I thought I, I don't want to be join that. And then I saw it again and then I found myself arguing like, why would I want to join that? <laughs> and then I realized, oh, God wants me to join that group. So I joined it. So far I haven't seen anything of interest to comment on. But the reality is he's not telling you this. And, but I did see somebody sent me. Someone who should be sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, but because of the fact that they have some of this judgment in them as well, they've hesitated. They need to repent of that judgment and gather together. Uh, Because Christ said so. Not because everybody who's gathering together is doing what Christ said, but because Christ said so. But anyway, they sent me this deal that showed this this billboard out in front of a church. I can't remember the name of the church. Uh, some some denominational church. But it says that they're having in-person services now. 
bring proof of vaccination to the <laughs> like and that's not a church of Jesus Christ. I don't know what that is, but that's not a church of Jesus Christ. Those people aren't living by faith. They're living by the flesh. They don't even see. They live, they sit in darkness. They don't get it. There's so much evidence out there that this is, this is craziness. This whole vaccination thing is a bad thing. It's not a good thing. That this jab thing, I'll call it. I won't call it vaccination. But they don't see it. And so anyway, if you're going to read John 3, 15 and 16 and 17, where it says, you might be saved. Uh, and 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Who believes? Who doesn't believe? You say you believe. You say, Lord, Lord. You say you have this King Jesus. But you really go and pray to men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. You pray to the fathers of the earth. We have articles on that as well. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Jesus is showing you how to live by faith, hope, and charity. How to follow the way. And men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were still evil. They were still coveting their neighbor's goods. They were still taking a bite out of one another. They were still forcing the contributions of their fellow man and not forgiving. You know, like people say, well, I, I paid into Social Security. I have a right to collect it. Well, you have a legal right to collect it. But it's not necessarily what Christ wants you to do. Now, I'm not telling you one way or the other. I want the Holy Spirit to guide you. But the reality is they're not giving you your money because they're operating on borrowed money and they've been operating on borrowed money since they formulated this back in 1933. (laughs) It's never, ever, ever been solvent. Go read our article on Social Security. That that system is evil. That is the Corbin of the Pharisees that makes the word of God to none effect. If you don't see that, then you don't believe in the real Jesus. You may be like Nicodemus, who wanted to believe, and came, and began to ask and and ponder these questions, and, and had to search in his own soul. But like I said in verse 20, it says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. They don't want to admit that this way of the world is the deeds of the Nicolaitan. Verse 21, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light and his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God in the spirit of God they're they're coming together and doing what Christ said they're taking care of one another through faith hope and charity they're not looking to the pharaoh for the benefits of the pharaoh and the benefits of the world they've repented of that so that that you cannot read 15 16 17 18 without reading 19 20 and 21 you're taking it out of the context and you don't really believe if you're still doing the evil thing but anyway come back after the break and we'll get into verse 22 
So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, again, I cannot say this enough, that if you're going to read John 3, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, you've got to read 20 and 21. You cannot take these verses out of the context of the verses of John or the verses of James, James 2.20. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Why is faith without works dead? Uh, for the same reason he says in James 2.20. Uh, no, is it 2.26? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Because that's what he's talking about, is the spirit giveth life. The letter does not giveth life. You know, if you take off the seventh day and rest on the seventh day, but you're in debt up to your ears and you're putting your children into debt up to their ears by taking stimulus checks and benefits coming out your ears. No. You, you're fooling yourself. You're you're loving the darkness. You don't want to hear the truth. Who is a wise man and endued with the knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. This is this is important to understand. And, and, you know, this is also, we could get into that, but we don't have the time because we got quite a few more verses to go through before we're done. But if we go right to verse 22, what I was going to say is that, you know, there's a reason why it says ministers should be, you know, the husbands of one wife. And they should have a family that's not rebellious and, and working together and and, you know, decent kids and all that kind of stuff. Not that you're condemned if something goes wrong, but that it is evidence that you may be minister quality. Because you've proven through a test of time that, I mean, you cannot be a good father and a good husband without this spirit of sacrifice. It is just required. Now... How do you know that somebody has that spirit of sacrifice and they're not just going to go off with every whim or whatever suits them or whatever they feel and go reevaluate everything, you know? You don't want to go reevaluate everything in your life. You want the Holy Spirit to come into your life and He will evaluate everything because the Holy Spirit bringeth the light of God. The spirit of seminaries and churches bringeth their own light. Well, even Satan is known as the light bringer. It's not, it's not the light. It's his light. He's going to give you justification for the deeds of the Nicolaitan. You don't want that. You want to see the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and provide for it. And the only way you know what to provide for it is that the Holy Spirit come along and show you the way. Because you're not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're now eating of the tree of life. You're now receiving the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Not the emotionalism of modern churchanity, but the actual Holy Spirit itself. In order to receive that and see that and perceive that, you have to set down yourself, your vanity, your ego, 
verse 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. Now, I once read, and it, it rang, it was one of those Kodak moments, that Jesus never baptized anybody. It was always his apostles that baptized people. But it, reading that particular phrase, now I'm not reading it in Greek right now, but that sounds like Jesus baptized. It does say he's with his disciples, but it says Jesus and his disciples came into the land and there he tarried with them and baptized. So it sounds like Jesus did baptize. <laughs> so anyway, so that, that, that settled something. I remember hearing that one time and it bothered me. This just has been sitting in the back of my mind for, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years. <laughs> and here I read this for the first time and I go like, whoa, that sounds like Jesus did baptize. So anyway... If somebody tells you that, you can just remember John three twenty two, And John also was baptizing in Enon, near uh, to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples... And the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. So it's saying that, again, there in verse 26, it's saying that Jesus baptizeth. <laughs> Uh, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, the Meshach. That's what he's saying there. But that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Now, this is before John sends messengers to Jesus from prison and asks, Are you the one? He doesn't really know entirely yet who Jesus really is. High priest and king. He doesn't, he, he seems to know almost, but why would he send messengers to ask that question when he was in prison? Well, someday I'll have to ask John, but I, th I find that interesting. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. So he knows, he, when he says, he is the one who comes after me, he's saying, this is my replacement. John was literally the rightful high priest at that time. His father had been in the Holy of Holies, had been the high priest, 
and his father was dead. And this all took place during a time where there was this uh, walkout of the Sanhedrin. And so there was no, you know, the Nick, uh, 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 Caiaphas was not the rightful high priest. That was an apostate Sanhedrin. The real Sanhedrin was the 70 that Jesus Christ picked, which he had the authority to pick because he was king. And here we see John the Baptist saying, he is also to take my place, which would mean he would be the new high priest. This is technically important. It's not important to your salvation, but I mention it here. For those of you who can see more deeply. But until you want to see the fact that you have not been following the Holy Spirit. You've actually been delivered back into the bondage of Egypt. You are actually praying daily to men who exercise authority. Asking them to take away from your neighbor. To take a bite out of your neighbor so that you can have free stuff. If you're not willing to see that, you don't need to see. And you probably won't see the rest of what I'm talking about here. But anyway, verse 31. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Verse 32, And what he hath seen and heard that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. This is kind of what Jesus had just been saying to Nicodemus. It's a repetition of that. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. In other words, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. So this is a repetition of what we just read earlier. uh, In verses 20 and 21. uh, That this. Our deeds tell us whether or not we believe. And our deeds are the evidence, not only for others, but for ourselves. That if we are still not gathering together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, not taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, just taking care of our families is not enough. That's a good start, but it's not enough. It's not kingdom. It's family. Just taking care of your local congregation. It's great. But it's not enough. It's not kingdom. It's congregationalism. Now, family is core. Congregation is essential. But when those congregations are linked in a network of charity, now we're talking kingdom. All of this, family, congregation, and the kingdom of God requires the Holy Spirit dwelling in us individually and collectively. But if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us collectively, we are not a democracy. We are not judging one another. We are not 
ruling over one another. We are gathering together and bringing the light that God gives us into the mix of our congregations. If we're bringing our own light, it will be a dim light. If we're bringing the light of Christ, the anointed, then we will bring a light that will have the power of the anointed with us. And this is what we see when the apostles came into one accord. They had been around together for a long time. The 70, the apostles, and then eventually 120 in the upper room. These are probably 120 families. This is the way they talked in those days. When they talked about 5,000 men at the loaves and fishes, they weren't talking about their families because it says 5,000 men and their families. So when they talk about 120 in the upper room, they're talking about 120 and their families. Now, I don't know if all their families were in the upper room. That would have been quite a crowd. But the, it's not just 120 people. It's 120 families. you got to remember, a family is, is a unit. It's a godly unit. No more twain, but one. So one representative of the family represents the whole family. And so that representative gathers together in a group of ten. That was common in those days. A synagogue was ten families. Somebody said that Jesus performed all of his miracles out in the open. Only once did he perform them in a synagogue. Well, the guy, you can see by the way he was talking that he was thinking a synagogue is a building. A synagogue was not a building. Any more than the church is a building. It is today in our language, in the sophistry of our thinking, the church is a building, but that's not, the church is the called out. The Levites were the called out in the wilderness, and the apostles and the 70 and the 120 in the upper room were the called out in the New Testament. They went out and baptized people who organized themselves in tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, because that's what Christ commanded. And they set up an international network of charity that was essential for the survival of Christians during the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. What was the decline and fall of the Roman Empire? Well, their system of Corbin, because Rome had a system of Corbin as well. Spelled it different. Q-O-R-B-A-N. I mean, Corbin is even mentioned in the Koran. It means sacrifice. Your taxes are your Corbin today. Your social security tax is your Corbin today. That is your sacrifice. But that is the kind of sacrifice that makes the word of God the none effect. You may still have to pay it because you have to be friends with the unrighteous mammon because you've signed up or your parents signed you up. You've been signed up for generations and you're back in the bondage of Egypt. You can't free yourself to, you know, you know, well, I signed, uh, you know, or, you know, this paper and then so now I don't have to do what they say anymore. So you've saved yourself. You've become your own savior. And no, it doesn't work that way. You have to be friends with the unrighteous mammon, but seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And like I said, everybody was going to be free someday, but everybody's not going to survive freedom. And the only way to survive freedom is to do what Christ said. To have the blessings and the grace of the Holy Spirit introduced into your life. So, very little time left. But I do have a side panel where I talk about uh, certain things. If you go to preparingyou.com and look up 
Bible and, or just type in John 3 in the uh, search engine. It'll take you to a page called John 3. And there I have this idea of being born again is not a new in man's history. There was a convergence of the Sumerian and uh, Akkadian people in the third millennium B.C., which produced the kingdom of Sumer and the earliest known civilization in the historical region of southern Mesopotamia. It was not only a crossroad of language, but also of the philosophies, religions, and cultures of societies from the Indus Valley and Egypt. Now, Indus Valley, that's actually... That's going back to early Abraham, who came actually from the Indus Valley. There was a huge migration, and we talk about that in other places, and and give you you know quotes from uh, archaeologists and everything, and explain that. But also Egypt. You remember, uh, most uh, Abraham had uh, eventually literally two wives. Uh, and uh, there was Sarah, but there was also this princess, Egyptian princess, uh, who eventually gave birth to Ishmael. And uh, that, so these the, these crossroads of societies and ideas were coming. You don't need to know all about that, although we talk about that because we're trying to show you these certain principles, the blending of these ideas. It says, over centuries, the conflict between the rulers of these civilizations and the individual rights has often been a bitter struggle of power between the temple and the palace, the church and the state, with the citizens taking the side of the temple. During the reign of uh, Urukagina, uh, there was opposition to the wealth and criminally of the uh, criminality of the uh, uh, Temkarum, or what they call merchants or moneylenders, who had enslaved the people. Well, I'm going to take a break right here from where, what I was just reading. This same process is actually going on now, and I will equate it to uh, has been going on for almost a century now. These moneylenders, these merchants of men, this is what uh, Canaanites were, merchants of men. Often when you see that, it's not always referring to a particular country or something, it's, uh, or Asurs, uh, which we talk about in other writings on the page, uh, some of our pages. These were merchants of men. They were the ones that make men merchandise by loaning them gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And then bringing them into tax systems where now a portion of their labor belongs to the moneylender. This is how you get back into the bondage of Egypt. And of course, like I said, you can go back before FDR and find them creating their own golden calf, their own central bank. That was the Federal Reserve that eventually, by 1929, 1930s, started taking in, with HDR 192, started taking in all the gold of the people. It was illegal for the people to own gold. 
We were already into trouble at that point, but then they needed more collateral, and so they created the Social Security system, which makes you merchandise. This is what they're talking about in these ancient civilizations is the same process that was going on in the last century. Now, the solution, again, is Christ, but it has to be the real Christ. And understand that you have to become a follower of the way of the real Christ. So anyway, I go on to say it is historical uh, cuneiforms, documents, that we find the word freedom used for the first time in man's recorded history. At least the recorded history that most people accept. Because there is more recorded history. <laughs> it's, just, it's just here and there and, and it's difficult to... But this is basically accepted. I'm quoting here anyway. The word is amargi, which may literally be translated return to the mother or her womb. What? They're saying this amargi, this word freedom, uh, equated in the cuneiform writings, is a return to the mother, a return to the womb. To what? To be born again! <laughs> This is not a new idea. The term of uh, Amaragi, or Amagi, they write it a number of different ways. It's cuneiform. It's not our regular alphabet. Produced the idea of freedom as well as manumission, exemption from debts or obligation, reversion to a previous state. This is this is redemption. They were talking about it thousands of years before Christ. This is a process we keep falling back into and returning to. Now, no one that I can find anywhere in history did it better than Christ. Christ is the ultimate. Christ's plan is the plan. And it's in the most recent language, at least originally in the Greek, so that you can see it. But it is not any different than the plan that Moses had. It's much different than what the Pharisees said Moses had, but we know the Pharisees had it wrong. So does that church that wants you to bring vaccine <laughs> passports so that you can visit the church. They got it wrong. So do most churches. Many are workers of iniquity, but claim Jesus as the Christ. But they are still doers of evil. I, I, I found this definition of redemption years ago, and I, I love to repeat it. Redemption is the deliverance from the power of an alien dominion and the enjoyment of the resulting freedom. It involves the idea of restoration to one who possesses a more fundamental right or interest. The best example of redemption in the Old Testament was the deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage, from the dominion, of the alien power of Egypt. What is the best example in the New Testament? It is the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now the baptism was water was an outward sign that now you are not going to go to the temple of the Pharisees to get your benefits. 
if you had need. If, you know, you have widows and orphans and, and families that break down or, you know, you, your dad breaks his back and can't make a living and he needs help, how are you going to make it? Well, you gather together in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. You help each other out. This is what we see Paul doing, what Barnabas is doing, taking emergency supplies in a faith emergency ministry auxiliary all over the Roman Empire because famines were sweeping across the Roman Empire because of food shortage, supply line shortages. Uh, occasionally there was plagues. Uh, there was uh, government breakdown. All the things that we have in store for us, although we probably have more store for us than even the collapse of the Roman Empire, and probably will come much quicker. So you need to be in a network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands with the Spirit of the Holy Spirit guiding you. So if you don't want the Holy Spirit guiding you, don't come. But anyway, seeking the kingdom of God is about the individual becoming both the temple and the palace. That's it. The power of the state is in the hand of the individual and the power of the temple or the finances of the temple are in the hand of the individual and what he freely gives his minister is freely distributed by his minister because it is totally given up. But anyway, we'll continue this this afternoon. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.